Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first scriptural reading today comes from Psalm 66, verses 8 through 20. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept us among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. Those that my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading comes from the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 22 to 31. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Then Paul stood in front of the Arabagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though God needed anything since he, he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, God made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And God allotted their times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed God is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. 
During quarantine, my family and I have committed ourselves to watching some of the classic movies of the past 40 years. Last week, we watched one of my favorites, Forrest Gump. You may remember, if you've seen the movie, near the middle of the movie, there's this compilation of three scenes that all take place in one day. Three scenes the Apostle Paul would have identified with after his time in Athens. In the first scene of this compilation, Forrest, the main character, receives the Medal of Honor in the White House from President Johnson. And while Forrest is appreciative of the reward, he is also unfazed and frankly unimpressed being in the presence of the President of the United States. He treats Johnson with the same kindness and respect he treats everyone he meets. Later in the day, Forrest goes out for a walk, still wearing his full dress uniform. Through a series of coincidences, Forrest ends up in the line of veterans scheduled to speak in public protest of the war in Vietnam. A nice woman in hippie garb invited him to stand in a line, and Forrest consented, in large part because of his freshly pressed full dress uniform, Forrest is put at the very front of the line, the first one slated to speak on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Before he walks up to the podium, a fellow veteran says to him, hey, you're a good man for doing this, a good man. To which Forrest responds, okay. Later that evening, still in full dress uniform, Forrest finds himself at a gathering of Black Panther activists. After being asked to leave the party because he defended his childhood friend Jenny from her abusive boyfriend, Forrest pauses at the doorway, turns and addresses the room of activists and says this, I'm sorry I had a fight in the middle of your Black Panther party. In each situation, regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable he may have felt by the politics of those gathered, or the pomp and circumstance of the moment, Forrest does not judge, condemn, or take sides. And it's part of the reason I think he's one of the most beloved characters in movie history. Forrest is truly extraordinary because of his willingness, his commitment to treat each person he meets throughout his life with kindness and respect. When the Apostle Paul finds himself in the lion's den of Greek culture and religion, surrounded by idols and philosophies that likely caused him great discomfort, much like Forrest, Paul finds a way, he finds a way to be present to them while refraining from any judgment. He finds a way to remain true to who he is, true to himself and his faith, amidst all those other religions, other people, pagans, idols, and foreign philosophies, which given his background and his people's history is nothing short of extraordinary. For millennia, the Jewish people were taught that the worship of idols was the boundary of difference, the wall of separation, the point of divine betrayal that they were simply not to cross or frankly even come close to. The very presence of idols was the sin the commandment sought to correct. As such, idol worshipers were to be ostracized, condemned, and kept far away from the people of God, for their sin was the first sin, 
from which all other sins spread. You shall have no other gods but me. And yet, despite all this tradition and history and theology, Paul moves toward the idol worshipers in Athens. Instead of condemning them, he speaks to them with kindness and respect, using their own language and their own poetry to connect with them. A man of deep theological insight, Paul speaks of God in this instance in generic and and rather inclusive terms to ensure these people hear what he has to say. The God of Israel, the God of all creation, the one true God has been with them from the very beginning. And this one God, this true God is not a mystery or a thing, it's an active presence in whom they live and move and have their very being. Instead of insulating his new community of faith from the influence of these idol-worshiping outsiders, Paul consciously expands the circle of God's love, of God's presence to include the very people, the people of God for centuries had sought to avoid. And I think he does this for one simple reason. It's what love demands, what love commands of him, the love revealed in the resurrection of the one who came to save the world. As the Gospel of John reminds us in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you notice what Jesus did not say in this foundational passage? He did not say, for God so loved the people of Israel, or for God so loved the faithful, or for God so loved the church. No, he said, for God so loves the world. What if God loves the world more than God loves the church? I've been considering the implications of this idea, this concept, for the past few years, but it hit me in a whole new way this week when I read about Paul's conversation with the people in Athens. God loves the world more than God loves the church. God loves the world more than God loves religious traditions and practices. God loves the world more than the systems and the structures we put in place to draw boundaries of who is in and who is out. God loves the world more than any particular understanding of who is right and who is wrong. God loves the world more than any nation or people, or political system. God so loves the world. I wonder if it was this realization, this idea, that allowed Paul, that enabled Paul to stay true to himself in front of those Greeks, despite the fact that Paul was altering his language a bit, adapting his traditions, and deconstructing many barriers that had been built over the years. I wonder if Paul was willing to speak to these idol worshipers with kindness and respect because he understood deep down what mattered 
most. During this pandemic, everyone is trying to figure out what is essential. Schools, businesses, families, communities, nonprofits, they are all trying to figure out what is essential to their operations, what they can afford to lose and what they have to hold on to, and what they need to let go of as they try to do more with less, less money, less time, less contact. In this ever-adapting landscape we find ourselves in, everyone is figuring out what is essential to them. And the church, frankly, is no different. As we find ourselves worshiping outside of the confines of the space we have come to call the church, we are asking, what is the church, really? If we don't have our building and our community gatherings, what do we have? What is essential, critical to our message and our mission if we can't sing together and worship together and break bread and drink the cup together? What, what can we do? What must we do? I wonder if in this time when the church, as we know it anyway, is slowly being deconstructed by a tiny virus, <laughs> I wonder if we're being invited, like Paul was in Athens, to alter our language a bit, to, to adapt our traditions, to break down any barriers we've constructed so we can witness to the world that we find ourselves in, so we can witness to them about the essential truth of our faith, God's love for all people. What if communicating this message, this good news, to anyone and everyone is our only essential task. In the early morning hours of January 10th, 1966, Sam Bowers, who was then the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, drove out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi to the house of Vernon Dahmer. While Dahmer and his family slept, Klansmen doused their house with gasoline and set it on fire. Dahmer's 10-year-old daughter was injured in the fire. Dahmer died from his injuries. In August of 1998, after four mistrials and 30 years of injustice, Sam Bowers was finally convicted of the murder of Vernon Dahmer. One of the people in the courthouse that day for Bowers' trial was the Reverend Will Campbell, a maverick Baptist preacher who played a key role in the fights for civil rights in the South. While serving as the chaplain at the University of Mississippi, Campbell got to know Vernon Dahmer as they worked together closely on voting right issues. Campbell was assumed to be at the trial to grieve the long-ago death of a close friend, which is why courtroom reporters were shocked when they saw Campbell being embraced as an old friend, not only by Ellie Dahmer, Vernon's widow, but also by the defendant, Klansman Sam Bowers. One of the reporters covering the trial asked Campbell how he could possibly be so friendly with both the victim and the vicious monster who had committed murder. The ever salty-tongued Campbell replied, because, damn it, I'm a Christian. Make no mistake about it, the most destabilizing truth in the world is the good news. 
the good news of the gospel. And that good news can be boiled down to one thing, God's unconditional love for everyone. The forgiveness Jesus offers, the grace he extends, the mercy he shares is without a doubt the most controversial and impactful force unleashed upon this world because it announces the end of the game we all love to play. The game of tearing others down to build ourselves up. The game of drawing lines about who's in and out, who can play, who can't. The game of comparing ourselves to feel better about ourselves. The game of caring more about the preservation of things, our practices, our traditions, our history, than the plight and the problems of real living people. The game of us versus them. I once heard the gospel described like this. In the middle of our struggle to prove ourselves by comparing ourselves, Jesus blew the whistle, announced the end of the game, and declared everyone a winner. He then goes on to inform us that all the huffing, puffing piety to earn God's favor is over. All the sweat-soaked straining to secure self-worth is finished. And all the competitive scrambling to get ahead has ended. God is on all our sides, Jesus declares, regardless of how well we have played the game. I've come to believe that saving the world is God's job. And the only way God can save the world is to love the world, all of it, and work in it, all of it, with all people in all places, regardless of party, religious, or cultural affiliation. Saving the world, that's God's job, not our job. We are not in the world saving business, God is. And there's a freedom in accepting that and owning that truth. But it turns out we're, we're also not in the world condemning business. Only God has the authority to condemn and frankly, God chooses not to. Yes, God calls all people to repent, to turn back towards God, but that repentance is only initiated and sustained by an assurance of God's unconditional love. Guilt and shame does not turn hearts. Only God's love can do that. We are not in the world saving business, thank goodness, or the world condemning business either. We are in the world witnessing business. Just as Paul did that day in the very center of Greek culture, we are called to witness in word and deed to the presence and the power of a love extended to all people, even the people whose beliefs and practices are contrary in opposition to our own. Our job is to move towards the world in humility and compassion so we can testify to the world that God is with them just as much as God is with us. Imagine if the church of Jesus Christ did that. Imagine if the one thing we were known for was our radical commitment to unconditional love. Imagine if the world saw us being willing to let go of everything we hold dear to ensure that everyone knew God cared about them. Imagine if we loved the world half as much as God does. If we did, 
all the church buildings in the world could not house those eager to worship the God in whom we all live and move and have our being. Amen.